This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live. And I'm Jack Cush from RoomNow.com. Today's episode, self-medicating myself. And no, we're not talking about candy, booze, or shopping. Self-medicating seems like a problem, don't you think? I just recently had two patients. One said to me, hey, where did this prescription for tramadol come from? She said, well... I'm taking my dog's tramadol. It seems to work fine. I've had other patients say I'm taking my dog's Rimadil or my dog's Meloxicam. You know, they sometimes have the same medicines as we do. Another good one is I'm taking my husband's Trazodone. Another great one is I I went back and took that gout medicine that was prescribed for me back in 1995. Yes, it's been in the drawer for over 15 years. Actually, that would be over 25 years. And then there's stories like this. A patient of mine gets admitted to the hospital, has um, a pulmonary embolism. She has chest pain, shortness of breath, ankle edema. We prove PE. We put her on uh, anticoagulant. She goes home on Coumadin. Uh, she has rheumatoid arthritis. She's told to not take any naproxen or Motrin or any anti-inflammatory medicines, but continue your other RA medicine. She goes home and does well, comes back in three weeks later, sudden, severe chest pain, shortness of breath again. Is this another PE? No, it's not. Oh, she dies. She dies from pericardial tamponade. Why does she have pericardial tamponade? RA, and she's taking Advil along with her Coumadin, and she bleeds into her heart and dies. So, Self-medicating is a bit of a problem for you and for the patient. The question is, why does someone self-medicate as opposed to seek the advice of a doctor? Maybe they don't have a doctor. Maybe they have a severe independent streak that is driven by their distrust of doctors. Um, it's a bit of a problem. Um, some patients, it's, a, it's an access issue. They really don't have resources and accesses. Some people, um, it is a financial issue. Sometimes it's very important to find out why did you do that? Um, Because when you're faced with a patient telling you, I'm taking my dog's medicine or my husband's medicine, or I I flew to Mexico to get medicine from a pharmacist because I didn't have to see a doctor then, you want to find out why they're doing that as opposed to asking you, the person who's supposed to know. So... I think it's a it's a bit of a problem. I think that you need to consider that someone who is self-medicating themselves may be self-diagnosing themselves. And that self-medication is a, is a surrogate for that. Uh, and self-diagnosis and self-medication, quite dangerous. It can lead to delays in care. It, can, it certainly is an avoidable risk, but a risk nonetheless that they are taking. You know, a lot of patients who self-medicate also have problems with addiction or maybe the converse is true. Patients who have a problem with addiction are often guilty of self-medicating. We also know that it adds to polypharmacy. And lastly, you know who's really guilty, really guilty of self-medicating? That's right. It's you, physicians and medical students who think, well, I'm just too busy to go to the doctor. I might as well just write myself a prescription for and whatnot. Pharmacies usually have a rule against this, especially if you're writing for drugs that you shouldn't be taking without a doctor's advice. But again, this is a gigantic problem. I think the question is, how are you going to respond to it? I tend to go ballistic and overboard, and that doesn't teach anybody anything. I think you shouldn't do what I do. I think you should probably like grab your head, shake your head, 
squint your eyes, make it look painful, like, oh my God, I wish you hadn't done that. And they're going to say, why? And you say, for the reasons I just said, it's dangerous. It's like, you know, rolling the dice. Know that when I prescribe a drug, the safety of that drug is actually has four built-in mechanisms for your safety. One, I know what I'm doing. I know that I can give you this drug along with those other drugs, and I have a list of everything that you're taking, I think. The other way is the, the, meta, the, the uh, program I'm using, my EMR, is also checking for drug interactions. Thirdly, the nurse who checks you out or the nurse who takes your phone call about your medicines, she's always checking for interactions and drugs that you should and should not be taking. And lastly, the pharmacy where you fill a prescription they're supposed to be checking. At least their computers are checking. So getting a prescription written by a doctor who's invested in your health and well-being is probably the message that you want to get, give. And you probably want to say, please, don't kill yourself. Please ask me for what you should take, and I'll certainly tell you. That's the today's case. Remember, roomnow.live, you can register. Our first day begins with a lecture by Roy Fleischman talking about the newest of therapies in rheumatoid arthritis. Maya Book from Leeds in the UK, a killer session on uh, difficult RA. She's been working on this with ULAR. Maya is a fabulous lecturer. And then Alan Matsumoto is going to talk about the recent advances and paradigms with ULAR guidelines and ACR guidelines. And then all of those three are going to get together and take your questions about RA. We're going to end our first day Saturday with a session on uh, RA again with Jeff Curtis, I'm sorry, Jeff Sparks from um, Harvard talking about ILD and RA, and I'll be talking about pneumonia and RA, the number one killer of RA patients. And then in between, we have two step sessions. Step sessions are, are like our TED Talks. In the morning, we have TED Talks from Ian McGinnis talking about lessons learned from older drugs in rheumatology, and Frank Buderet from Germany talking about glucocorticoids and RA. In the afternoon session, we're going to have two short TED-like talks on training, rheumatologic training and education during the time of COVID, and then an update from the Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry. That's just a few of the tidbits from this year's RoomNow.Live. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow. This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where it's not just about the data, it's more than connecting the dots. It's about discussing the dots. Cussing and discussing and really getting a chance to interact with your peers and the leaders in the field. So today's case is don't stop. Don't stop believing. Don't cry for me, Argentina. It's about don't stop my damn DMARDs when you got the COVID. This is driving me crazy. You know, since the beginning of COVID, we put out the message, don't stop your DMARDs, don't stop your biologics, even if you're worried about it. You know, obviously, if you end up in the hospital, you may have to stop your therapy. But I've had too many patients in the last three or four months who've had COVID who stopped their medicine. And most of them were told by other people, people who know nothing about our drugs, about to stop their DMARD biologic targeted synthetic. So... I have a methotrexate-treated patient doing great on just methotrexate. She goes in the hospital in December, and of course, her doctor stopped methotrexate. She's off methotrexate for nearly three months, and today, she comes in with a TJC of six and SJC of four. Also today, I have a patient 
with on abatacept. She's doing great on IV abatacept. Been taking it for two or three years with basically remission numbers. And she developed COVID in January. Doesn't go into the hospital. But the doctors who are treating her with nothing other than observation tell her stop the abatacept. Does she call me? No, 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 no. I would be the last person to call, I guess. And then, what was it, last week I had a patient on a JAK inhibitor doing great on a JAK inhibitor. Uh, and they stopped not only the JAK inhibitor, but the non-steroidal but, and the low-dose prednisone. And yes, she came in with four tender joints and eight swollen joints and a high set rate in CRP. And she's flaring, as you can imagine. Only been off the JAK inhibitor six weeks. The point is, this is something that is a big problem right now. The consequences of undelivered medical care during covid there's a lot of craziness around what to do when people get COVID. I'm not even talking about what to do with these drugs in the face of giving the vaccine. That's a whole nother um, uh, cluster, if you will. But here, I think the rules are very clear. Number one, don't stop the DMARDs. If someone thinks they have COVID, are going to get tested for COVID, you keep taking therapy because the rule has generally been our patients, inflammatory arthritis patients, and even autoimmune patients have done well continuing their therapies because their disease has been controlled. Inflammation is not in play. When they stop their drugs, inflammation is in play and it makes everything worse, including COVID infections. Number two, don't let others tell you how to or what to do with my medicines, meaning don't let the surgeon, the hospitalist, your next door neighbor, the psychiatrist, tell you what to do with your DMART or biologic. They don't know. They get their education from television, not from reading and studying and researching like you do. So you need to tell your patients, I own this medicine. I'm lending it to you. If someone wants to stop this DMART biologic targeted synthetic, Call me. I'm going to know what to do. Everybody else is just guessing. So number three, maybe you should get a whole new business card. You, the physician, the rheumatologist. It's going to say, Dr. Jack Cush. And then underneath it's going to say, call me when, A, you get sick. B, you go into the hospital. C, you're going to have surgery. Because when those three things happen, bad things are going to happen to your therapies at the behest of the idiots that are that think they know what they're doing. And lastly, shame on you and shame on me for not reaching out and being proactive in instructing all of our patients, not just the ones who you've seen in telemedicine, to on what to do during this pandemic. Yes, continue your medicine. No, you don't stop your DMARDs. You know, and then you can give them rules about what they should do when they're going to get the vaccine. That's a whole nother QD clinic. We'll talk about that next. Again, roomnow.live. Fabulous session. I don't know if you've seen it. The last day on psoriatic arthritis um, has uh, three lectures. Uh, spondylitis, I'm sorry. Has three lectures in the morning. Nigel Haroon from Toronto is going to talk about new advances in therapies. Great speaker. Artie Cavanaugh is talking about what to do with enthesitis and dactylitis. Can, is there anything you can do? And the session is going to end with Robert Wong, an um, autoimmune and systemic uh, eye disease guy in Dallas who is going to talk about iritis and B27. And then we're going to have a half hour of Q&A with these people who know everything on those topics. Roomnow.live. Hope you're going to be there. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. This is Cutie Clinic. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. This Cutie Clinic 
is called I'm Ready to Fly. What? I want to talk to you about flying, about going to restaurants, about wearing masks, and why going to RWCS was actually a great thing. You know, I travel a lot. I'm used to being a lot of planes, going to a lot of places, but not so much in the last 12 months. It's really been shut down time. So um, I was able to go to RWCS and I sort of learned something at that meeting. But let me begin with why it's safe to go to a, rest to a restaurant. Restaurants, really. Well, you know, I live in Texas. The governor of Texas just opened up the whole state and threw away the mask mandate. The man's insane. He's out of his mind. I don't know why these idiots, these politicians are trying to kill people. Um, clearly, there are rules, and the rules should be followed. But the rule says that you need to wear a mask to go into a store. You need to wear a mask to go into a restaurant. And then you get in, a, get in the restaurant, and what do you do? You take your mask, and you throw it away. And now it's supposed to be magically safe? Isn't that stupid? Actually, it's not. And why is it not? Well, because when you sit down in a restaurant, you're going to be sitting down at that table with the people you live with, the people you hang with, the people who you don't wear a mask around 24-7 at home, wherever. Um, I live alone. I go to a restaurant. I'm by myself. Um, there's very few people I go to a restaurant with where I don't need to wear a mask. But you're basically at a table in a six-foot sphere, a bubble of your own, where there's no um, invasion, if you will, of microbes into your space. The only person that's breaking into your space is going to be Olga, the waitress, who's wearing a mask, and she's dropping a few plates of chimichangas and leaving. She might come back once or twice. The risk of getting COVID at a restaurant isn't sitting down and eating chimichangas. It is going in and out of the restaurant. It is not wearing your mask there or not being careful about who you mingle with and who you traffic by. Again, you're mingling at the door, holding the door, letting people go by you. You're mingling at the checkout counter, paying your bill with people you don't know and you don't know what their risk is. You're not controlling your environment. When you're seated at the table, you have control of your environment. It's the same thing on a plane. I haven't been on a plane in a long time. I thought it was great to get on a plane. I was worried about it, but I have my rules. My rules are I double mask. I, wear, I wore a, um, a, a complex fiber cloth mask and N95 over that. I wore uh, goggles. Um, I, you know, I didn't mingle with people. I went to the bathroom before I got on the plane. I drank a bottle of water. I didn't talk to anybody. Flight attendants don't talk to me. Um, I had space between me and the next uh, open seat, um, and it was a safe experience. Why are planes safe? Well, actually, there's very few cases of COVID from plane travel. And the research on travel and acquiring infections basically shows that you have this, again, this sphere of influence. It's, about, it's less than six feet. It's basically two seats away, maybe the seat in front of you, maybe the seat across the aisle, or someone in the same aisle as you. If those people got COVID and they're coughing, you're going to get COVID. But interestingly, there have been very, very few cases of COVID acquired on planes in the last year. You know, there's been a few, like, horrific stories of, 
or something bizarre that happened, but they're rare and far between. Moreover, as you know, the, the planes have gotten all crazy about sanitizing everything. Um, the protocol is you sit in an, at a window seat, um, you have a space next to you, you control your space, control your environment, um, and you don't mingle. The risk of getting COVID in plane travel isn't on the plane. It's actually checking in, going through security, mingling at the food court. Walk around the airport and you'll see that everybody at the airport isn't wearing a mask. Many people are, but there are people who think that I only need to wear a mask when I get on the plane. And that's not true. You need to wear the mask from the time you get out of your car to the time you arrive at your destination. And this is the same as to why RWCS was actually a safe and comfortable meeting. Number one, you had to travel there. Travel was uneventful for, I don't know, 50, 100 people who went to the meeting. Um, what, what happened once we got there? Well, there were precautions. Everybody got their own eight-foot table. Everybody was encouraged to wear masks while walking around the hotel and on the hotel property. And then once you got into the meeting, you could take off your mask if you're eating your breakfast. But a lot of people um, would take off their, would leave their mask on during the meeting, even while they're taking notes and watching the speakers, etc. Some people would take it off intermittently. But the bottom line is when you got up, it's like the restaurant. You put your mask back on and you're good. You know, you can go get, get a, a nice tea or go to the bathroom or go by the booths and see the, 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 the sales reps. It was actually quite comfortable. And then when we gathered as a group, by the way, who was the group? The group were doctors who all had to be tested to get into Hawaii. The rule was you had to have a, a nasal PCR within 72 hours of arriving in Hawaii to be admitted to Hawaii. Moreover, these are all doctors, all of whom had been vaccinated. Yes, both vaccines. So by the time we got there, we had created our own bubble that we weren't mixing with other people. And when we got together as a group, we were outside, maintaining the same distancing and masking. And then when we ate, we took off our mask. When we done, we put our mask back on. Incredibly safe, very comfortable. This is what's gonna happen at Room Now Live in Fort Worth. We got a bunch of people coming. We're gonna ensure the same degree of safety, um, you know, sanitary conditions, great spacing in the meeting. Uh, we're going to have a gathering. It's gonna be outdoors. It's going to be entirely safe. I'm going to be comfortable doing that, being there. I hope that you're going to be comfortable being there. We'll see you in Fort Worth in but a few weeks. Hi, this is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now. Today's case is it's remission time. Or is it? So I got two cases I recently saw that have sort of the same conundrum. One, a patient with Stills disease who... I've weaned off of Actemra, and two, a patient with lupus who I'm weaning off of azathioprine. The question is, are they really in remission and can I push forward? So the 68-year-old Stills disease patient, yes, that's right, 68 years old, you don't really have Stills disease over the age of 60. Well, she is one. She's got a great history of it. She's had high spiking daily fevers with chills, with even actually with um, weight loss, 30 pounds of weight loss, um, white counts of 25,000, ferritin levels of 17,000, um, hepatosplenomegaly, lymphadenopathy, great response to anakinra, couldn't take it, did better on Ectemra, was on Ectemra for almost a year and a half. The only thing about her diagnosis is that she had this fixed rash 
that um, would change sort of like by weeks, meaning that stills rashes are supposed to be that even essence salmon pink rash that come and go day to day, may come out with fevers and whatnot. She didn't have that. She had a different kind of rash. Um, biopsy, nonspecific inflammation. That's the only thing that she had. Again, re great response to steroids, to Kinneret, to um, Actemra. Before I got her, someone had given her Remicade, no response, and that's the story with Stills disease. And now she's done great. She's been in remission for, I don't know, almost a year and a half uh, off of prednisone. Uh, and I finally stopped her tocilizumab that she was getting IV. Um, my rule is show me one year of, of disease inactivity with normal labs, and then we can stop therapy. Because Stills disease, I don't know how long the systemic disease is going to last. It's either going to be eight months or eight years. Anyway, we went off that. And all is good. She's been off the, um, the Ectemra for four or five months, except now she's having a urticarial rash, intermittent, itchy, very itchy, clear-cut urticaria. And when you look at her labs, all her labs, white count, LFTs, everything's normal, exam is normal, but wait, her ferritin is high at 450. So do I rush back in with therapy? Do I treat the lab? Do I think that her urticaria is due to her Stills disease, which is entirely possible, by the way? Um, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to watch. I'm not going to treat a lab. Uh, I'm only going to restart therapy when she starts having high fevers uh, and the rest of the syndrome. So the bottom line is she is still in remission. The urticaria is being evaluated and going to be treated symptomatically. We're going to follow her ferritin, her white count, her sed rate CRP, and her LFTs, and we'll see what happens. The lupus patient is younger. He's like, uh, it's a man. He's in his 40s. Uh, Clear-cut lupus with rash, arthritis, pleuritis, pericarditis in the past, hematologic stuff, has been on uh, Imuran for a number of years in low-dose prednisone, and now he's down to 100 of Imuran, and I'm trying to wean his prednisone. His labs have been stone-cold normal. Negative double-stranded DNA, normal C3, C4, normal white count. Um, the only thing is, as I've weaned him down on prednisone, he's down to 2.5 of prednisone. He says now he has fatigue. Sounds like steroid withdrawal to me. But he does have a new lymphopenia. His lymphocyte count has dropped um, down to 1,100 when it was previously more than 1,500. Uh, and, is, again, labs are all normal. And what am I going to do? It's the same story here. I'm not going to treat a lab. Uh, the symptoms are not enough to make me worry. I may have another explanation. In his case, just steroid withdrawal, and you just have to go slow. And um, and we talked about sawtooth steroid withdrawal or weaning before. Uh, and I'm just going to observe him. The bottom line behind this QD clinic is worry about the patient when you see abnormal labs. It's not uh, a knee-jerk reaction where you jump back on with a lot of other therapies. It's Sometimes best just to ride it out and see how they do. Make sure you come to Room Now Live. One cool thing we're going to be doing at Room Now Live, it's going to be in great downtown Fort Worth. So if you get there on Friday, you can walk around. It's going to be a beautiful day. It usually is weather-wise. And then on Saturday night after our program, we're going to have a reception on the roof outdoors. Um, it's going to be fun. Great weather, good people. We'll see you there. Bye. This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where every seat is a good seat.
Our meeting is March 2021. You can register now. Today's case is RA and LFTs, a not uncommon scenario. Specifically, we're going to talk about steatosis, fatty liver, what all that means. My patient's a 62-year-old woman who's been on rheumatoid, who's been, who's had rheumatoid arthritis for about nine years. She's been on methotrexate, and last um, DMARD that she was taking in addition to that was rituximab. She's been on rituximab for about three years and done very, very well with regard to her RA, very well controlled. She intermittently has, as you would guess at this point, uh, increased AST and ALT. You know, sort of low numbers, 53, 65, 34, and 71. You know, they're sort of back and forth and whatnot. And as you would expect, we did um, uh, uh, infectious testing. She is uh, hep B surface antigen negative, uh, hepatitis C, hepatitis A negative. She does have a hep B surface antibody that's positive, but her core antibody is negative, indicating that she has been vaccinated in the past. Um, her ferritin levels are normal, um, and for the most part, her labs are usually very good. She's not had inflammation. She's not had swollen joints. She has some tender joints. Um, but again, these intermittent labs uh, showing ALT and AST being up. So what did we do? We did a, an ultrasound and shows that she does have fatty liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD. As you know, a very common sort of Western culture disorder. Uh, fatty liver is more common in uh, individuals who are obese, those who have the metabolic syndrome and therefore insulin resistance and diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, also being risk factors for NAFLD. Now, um, the real concern here is, can you continue to give her methotrexate? Do you need to worry about those liver enzymes? When is that going to be an issue? It turns out that RA patients themselves are at higher risk for NFALD, and that's because inflammation is a risk factor for fatty liver. Being rheumatoid factor positive, you're more likely to have NFALD than being rheumatoid factor negative. But the bottom line is, this is a very common uh, scenario in our patients that usually doesn't amount to much other than the need for monitoring. So we do know that um, inflammation is an important factor here. We do know that drugs are not with the exception of maybe two. Um, so methotrexate does not cause NFALD and in general does not worsen NFALD. In some of you who have higher numbers that are bouncing around, you may lower methotrexate levels and be able to better control those LFTs. But for the most part, research has shown that methotrexate is not a causative factor and not much of a worsening factor. You know, NFALD can progress to a more severe form of NASH, um, and then there is a risk with uh, that for developing cirrhosis and a very, very remote risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. But again, such patients will have steadier, higher, more persistent um, LF, uh, LFT elevations. We do know from some research, including some abstracts at ACR, that hydroxychloroquine seems to lower the risk of NFALD by as much as 25%. Uh, there's been some reports that maybe Aranafin, oral gold, who uses oral gold anymore, might also lower the risk. But for the most part, all of your drugs, all of your biologics really don't affect the levels. I think the real issue here is it's an elevated liver enzyme. You may know the cause of it, 
but the rules on methotrexate still apply, meaning that if you're doing 12 monthly LFTs, five or more being abnormal increases your risk of significant methotrexate toxicity, including cirrhosis, and would then recall for a need to either reduce the dose or get rid of the drug and substitute it with something else. Now, most of you are not doing 12 monthly uh, liver enzyme assessments. You're doing it quarterly. But I think my bottom line is when I'm seeing more than half of my LFTs come back positive, I need to make a change. Uh, for the most part, we have many patients who have NFALD. They can be safely watched. Watch your liver enzymes. There's not much else you should be doing. Fibro scans, I almost never do. But if you send them to GI, that's what they're going to do to look for cirrhosis. Um, repeat uh, ultrasounds might be useful in people with serious um increases in their liver enzymes that's it for this qd clinic if you want to hear more about great cases like this come to room now live dr stan cohen on sunday the 21st is going to give a lecture on ra and liver disease where he'll discuss this and the other things that we commonly see it's a great session on ra that's going to also include Lou Bridges, uh, the chairman of um, rheumatology at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, he's going to be talking about epigenetics in RA. And then Jeff Curtis is going to be talking about the new vaccine recommendations for our patients. Very controversial. A lot of discussion on that. We'll see you at Room Now Live.